0: So last time we started to talk about the ways we protect ourselves, the ways at least we try to protect ourselves, and the way that our protections, our armor actually becomes our prison, the way it in fact traps us inside and stops us from fully experiencing our life in the world, stops us from fully experiencing love, from fully experiencing openness. And we talked about how hard it is to let down those barriers and walls, to actually allow the world in, to allow it to penetrate us a little bit, to allow it to touch our heart. And that to do this actually requires a tremendous amount of trust. A tremendous amount of trust. And that this trust is not a trust that everything's gonna be okay, because everything might not be okay, actually. The world doesn't always work out the way we want it to. But a trust that somehow we will be able to be with whatever happens. Whatever the future brings, we are wide enough, we are expansive enough, we are brave enough to somehow hold and contain that experience. It says in Devarim, Hashem says, Right? That you have to circumcise your heart to circumcise your heart this really crazy thing we do right we circumcise at least all our boys and we expose this incredibly vulnerable part of their body we take away this covering right this thing which seems like a protection and here Hashem tells us this is actually what we have to do to our heart we have this these barriers around their heart these things which seem like a protection and we actually have to, with great kindness, cut it away. Cut it away. And expose that soft, vulnerable, beating core underneath. And really, when we're willing to do that, that's our deepest protection. I mentioned last time the beautiful line from Leonard Cohen, in his song anthem. He says, "Ring the bells that stout, still can ring, forget your perfect offering." There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, right? There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. But we're often unwilling to let that crack grow, to really let it expand, right? We're the the famous Dutch boy with the dike, with his finger in the dike, right? And because it's scary, it's like we're going to take our hand out and the water's going to come gushing through and who knows what's going to happen and we're going to get drowned and overwhelmed, right? We talked last time about this beautiful midrash of King David building the temple and the way he touched the chaos underneath at the very root of the world and he was terrified that the chaos was going to overwhelm him. And so we protect ourselves. And in all the ways we've mentioned, in all the ways we avoid suffering, the ways we prop up our ego, The way we avoid criticism, the way we criticize ourselves to make sure we're the kind of person we have to be. Often we do it, for instance, through our roles, right? One famous, I think, way we do it, it's very important for us to be aware of, is any of our roles as helping, especially helping professions, if we're therapists or social workers or teachers or meditation teachers or parents, right? That position itself takes on a kind of protection. It's like, there's the vulnerable person over there that I'm helping in some way, but not me, right? I'm in this position where I'm strong, I'm invulnerable, I'm capable. But really that position is just a way to make ourselves feel safe. And when we make ourselves feel safe, we can't do the deep work we need to do in that position. We can't really open our hearts, let's say, to that child as a teacher, as a parent, if we're trying to protect ourselves and make sure that we look secure and in control. But if we're willing to actually drop that role, drop that response of protection, then there's a tenderness in there, a tenderness underneath, a place that feels vulnerable and warm and soft, where actually we can directly connect to that person on the other side of the role. Human being to human being. Genuinely human being to human being. The Nagi <clears> de <throat> says that if you want to truly connect, the kasher, one person with another, you have to come to the state of iron, of nothingness. A place where all those barriers, all that protection, all that stuff between us and the other person, whew, we just let it go. And so we're not going to be at the state of nothingness. It's okay. <laughs> but the walls don't have to be you know, 12 feet thick. Maybe they could be 8 feet thick. Right? And a little bit less and a little bit less over time. We see it in the parsha a few weeks ago. I think you know, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. It's such a fascinating story. I think. I think what's fascinating about it is they're given a commandment, they don't do it. Whatever. They're human. They mess up just like all of us. And the first response is blame, right? <laughs> the first thing they do, right? Adam is like, Chava made me do it. And Chava's like, it was the snake, right? But the first response is, how do I put it on somebody else? How do I not take responsibility for what I actually did and where I am? And that response, that blame, of course, is a kind of self-protection. It's like, I'm not responsible somehow. This doesn't to be put on me. How do I protect myself? I shift it off to somebody else. And it's interesting that before that first sin, which I think actually is the blaming, is the shifting, and the not willing to take responsibility, they're vulnerable. They're naked. They're open. They don't notice it. It's just their natural state. And only after this transformation of blame and self-protection, all of a sudden they need clothes. How come they need clothes all of a sudden? How come they need this protection, these skins, given them by God, right? Because all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm not in that space of openness anymore. I'm in a space where I think I need protection. And then there's this work of millennium, this work of millennium to kind of let go of the clothes a little bit and realize it's okay to be naked in front of each other. And we do this, we secure, we try to secure ourselves in all sorts of ways. Robert Solomon is a very interesting uh, philosopher of the emotions. He says, in order to secure the emotional structure of our world, to make ourselves feel safe, we actually opt for those emotions which are least likely to be satisfied. Right? Classic examples of this, for instance, are like love for like pop stars, right? which like kids do. right. But we also do some of the same things. We take on emotional directions which we know are not going to be satisfied. Like trying to get, let's say even for instance, love and understanding from somebody who's never ever given it to us and probably is never going to give it to us, right? But we're constantly fighting to have that and actually, bizarrely enough, it means nothing's going to shift, right? Nothing's going to threaten us really because we're just going to stay in the same position we've been the whole time. There's no danger of that love actually being realized and then that's wonderful but also pretty scary. It's like, well, what if I really have to be in love, and I really have to give from love, and I really have to receive from love? And so we talked last time about the way our protection, when we let go of protection, it actually opens up this possibility of love and connection. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the other qualities and possibilities of life it opens up. One of the, the most important, I think, is creativity. Samuel Beckett said, to be an artist is to fail as no other dares to fail. Right? If we really want to have that, that aspect of creativity to do something new, to do something that comes from the genuine center of ourself, it can only come from a willingness to totally mess it up. And in fact, only by messing it up a bunch of times do we finally get it right in that immensely beautiful way. Every creative act, whether it's you know in art, in science, in our emotions, in our spirituality, is a leap into the unknown. It's a great risk. The act of love, it's a great risk. What happens when you give your heart into somebody else's hand? And it's only possible when we're willing to let go of what is safe and unknown. Last time, Annie asked the question about um, problem solving. She said, but when I'm, when I'm anxious, it pushes me to try to figure out what's going to be the solution to the problem, and how do I fix this problem in my life? But if we notice, actually, the quality of ourselves and we're anxious, we notice that we're actually caught in protecting ourselves because we're just caught in the same old patterns and solutions. Right? There's nowhere for our mind to go because it's very narrow. It's very tight. We're caught, most of all, in the need to solve the problem. It has to be better. It has to be fixed. It's too hard to deal with the situation just as it is. But when we let the protection fall, when we're ready to enter the unknown, then new solutions can present themselves, new possibilities. We don't have to be limited to what was. There's also been a lot of space, a lot of possibility for new ways of dealing with this problem, for new ways of dealing with this issue. Things we never would have seen before because we are so caught in our old structures, which are the structures of self-protection. And this letting go of protection is also the deep meaning of emunah, what it means to have faith. Ashide, a Japanese poet, says, The barns burnt down. Now I can see the moon. (laughs) Who knows what our willingness to accept will bring, right? The barns burnt down, that was a loss. But now I can see the moon. And it's not about a Pollyannish effort to see everything as good. Because not everything is good. There's real losses. Things are hard. Things happen that are bad. We don't want them to happen. That's the reality of life. <clears throat> but in knowing that there's a trust which is deeper than my fear, which is deeper than my mind, A trust which is God, a trust which knows that there's some wider space I can be in which everything is okay. Even that it's not okay is okay. Everything is okay, not in the sense of it's all right what that person did or it's okay that me or my loved one has this illness. But in the sense of that's our basic nature of our human experience. And if we really want to be able to respond with wisdom and compassion to our experience of the world, we have to be willing to recognize and trust that basic nature of our experience. To know that in this sense of width and breadth, we can contain it all. It's like the ocean. I was at one day in Tel Aviv, actually, with Debbie. We are on sort of the, the promenade. And looking out at the ocean, there's a storm sort of off in the distance. And she talked about how, you know, there's this huge, infinite, wide ocean and there's a storm inside it. But from the perspective of the ocean, everything's okay. Not that there isn't a storm happening. There's a storm happening. And the storm might, you know, shoot some lightning, might overturn a ship. It's not that nothing happens. But there's still the perspective of the ocean. There's something wider there. And in in that width, we can hold, we can hold the world, we can hold everything. And with that trust and that faith comes truth. This is one of the most important qualities that come with our willingness to let go of that sense of self-protection. When we protect ourselves, we hide ourselves from the truth. The truth about ourselves and the truth about others. Because, frankly, it's just too painful. Right? It's too painful when we're trying to protect ourselves. When we're trying to hold the truth at bay. It's too painful to have it penetrate. Because there isn't that place of open trust, of courageous compassion to hold it. The truth that maybe we really messed up and hurt somebody. Right? That genuine truth. It's hard to really see that, and so we do one of two things. Usually we do one of two things. One, we're not willing to really see it in some way. right? So we ignore it, we push it away, we're not willing to own up to what really happened. Or we're consumed by guilt. And guilt is actually just another way to avoid the truth. Guilt is a mode of self-punishment, which, by punishing ourselves, we both feel terrible and feel somewhat virtuous from feeling terrible and punishing ourselves through guilt. Right? And it actually also stops us from genuinely recognizing what we've done and genuinely taking whatever steps need to be taken to repair it, to genuinely put ourselves on the line. Guilt is actually paralyzing versus this genuine regret and acknowledgement that I've done something wrong and I need to repair it, which is activating, which allows us to act wisely and compassionately in the world. We have to let go of this protection if you want to really communicate with each other. Communicate with those we love. Communicate with those we find difficult to love. A Polish poet, whose name I'm going to butcher right now, (laughs) but it's something like Czeslaw Miloš, but I'm sure it's totally different than that. (laughs) There's a lot of vowels in there, Um, said, each of us is so ashamed of his own helplessness and ignorance that he considers it appropriate to communicate only when he thinks others will understand. There are, however, times when we slowly divest ourselves of that shame and begin to speak openly about all the things we do not understand. Sort of to touch that experience a bit. Our willingness to only speak when we think we will understand and the other person will understand, when we will be understood and accepted. But if we can let go of that sense of self-protection, which is the nature of shame and embarrassment, right? I want to protect myself from that sense of shame then all of a sudden we can say things which I may not even understand. Maybe the other one understand. But there's genuine truth in that expression. We can just notice it ourselves. We can notice the prison of shame, the prison of having something to express and not being willing to express it, and ah, the freedom of when we let it out. We've all experienced that freedom of finally letting something out, of finally telling somebody something, some deeply held secret, right? And the freedom that that brought, in deep ways and in, you know, ridiculous ways. I remember, as a kid, I was a small child. I don't remember how old I was. Pretty young, maybe seven or eight or something. I am. Um, I we had these like big swing sets with like tall swings on the side, and they you know they swing on them. They're great and me and a friend, because we were idiots, decided that we would climb up the swing set and walk across the top, right? Which did not end very well, right? So it ended with me falling off the swing set and um, breaking my arm, and also breaking these, like, glasses I'd just been given. Now, as a little kid, actually, what I was so upset and worried about was, like, I could not believe I'd just broken these glasses, right? <laughs> And this present i would give given, and, like, how angry my parents were gonna be at me. Even though i like, just broken my arm, right? But this is like, totally not the front part of my identity. And, um, and I remember, like, I don't even know what I said. I said like, I'd fallen off the swing or something. Like, I knew also I wasn't supposed to be climbing and trying to tightrope walk across the top of the swing set. Clearly that was not you know, in the range of permissible, right? Um, I was so worried about that, right? I couldn't tell my parents the truth of what happened. So I said we were like swinging, I fell off the swing, eventually they took me to the hospital, turned up my my arm had broken. And I remember finally, a long time later, you know, telling my parents what had actually happened and the feeling of freedom and the ridiculousness of it all. Of course, that's like a small ridiculousness And of course we can all, from a much broader adult perspective, would have known, of course, if I had told my parents that, they would have been like, are you okay, let's go to the hospital, right? <laughs> They wouldn't have been like, oh my God, how could you break those glasses, right? That just would not have been the top of their agenda at all, right? They would have been like loving and fashion, like of course you're hurt, you're crying, let's make sure you're okay. Of course that would have been the response. But that's true, that's true of ourselves right now as well, and we don't see that, right? We do these things ourselves in our own internal response, as well as we project as the external response is going to be, Why did you do that wrong? How did you mess up? How could you be that person? How could you have that qualities? How could you have those desires? And therefore we hide it, right? We can't tell the truth to ourselves, to our parents, to our loved ones, to our work fellows. But if we're willing to taste that freedom, if we're interested in tasting that freedom, then we can just let a little bit of that hiding go because actually we can't do this work without that commitment to truth. We just can't do it without the commitment to truth. We'll just constantly be deceiving ourselves in many ways. And indeed the truth is that we're, we want to drop our sense of protection because in any case it's totally false. right? It's not like it's actually protecting us from anything. It's protecting that brittle, tight, scared ego inside of us, but it doesn't actually serve us to protect that. These walls aren't really keeping us safe. Helen Keller, famous um, overcomer of tremendous obstacles, said, security is mostly superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is not safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. It's quite tough. But it's also sort of a challenge to us. What do we want? Do we want the adventure? Or do we want nothing? And I'd say, not even it's not about, you know, am I going to go scale the mountain or am I going to sit at home? It's a question of at each moment, am I going to open to this always transforming, always changing, unstable, uncertain adventure of life, which is happening right now in my interaction with you, or am I going to put up the walls and therefore have this kind of muffled life, right? life through a cloud, life which is not sharp and clear and bright and direct and connected? Trungpa Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan teacher, says... It's just necessary to drop altogether this idea of security and see the irony of your attempts to secure yourself, the irony of your overlap, overlapping structures of self protection. We think, right, all of us have somewhere this illusion. For us, it's different things maybe. Like if I just get that job, or if I just have that relationship, or if I just finish this degree, or if I just go spend a year in India, or if I just, whatever it is, you can choose your, you know, your thing. If I do that, somehow then I'll be, if I just win the lottery, right, I'll be secure. I'll be protected. I'll be safe. Right? Somehow, it's going to be okay if I can just do that one thing. But it's a total illusion. Right? There is no one thing. There is no ten things. There's no a thousand things, whatever they are, that is going to make you secure and safe and protected. It's just, the nature of human life. We're all going to die. We're all going to become sick. We're all going to suffer. Not in a pessimistic way, just that's the nature of life. That's what happens to us. We're also all going to live and experience joy and love and excitement and adventure. That's true as well, right? But if we're fighting all the time to try to stop those things from happening, we're wasting our breath and wasting our strength and causing ourselves a lot of pain in the meantime. It says in Tehillim, It's a very interesting pasuk. Because you can read it two ways. You can say, my heart is empty and open within me. It's a halal, it's an open space. Or you can say, my heart is dead within me. Like corpses, right? My heart is dead within me. And basically, that's our choice. That's our choice. We can be open dead. <laughs> my heart is always halal. The question is, what kind of halal do I want it to be? And there's a third possibility of reading it. My heart is pierced. Halal, like a, like a flute, Khalil It comes from the root for piercing. You pierce holes in the flute, and that's why it makes it sound. Right? And that's actually the key, I think, to finding that openness, is to allow my heart to be pierced to allow it to be vulnerable, to allow myself to let go of protection, and just to be touched, just to be touched. Because when we protect ourselves, we miss out on life. We just miss it. We're detached and distant from the richness of our lives. But we're willing for our heart to be open and our heart to be touched and pierced. Then life, in all its vividness, in all its power, in all its color, and all its sorrow and its all its joy is available to us at every moment. So we'll pause now. Um, and as usual, we'll open up to questions. Uh, questions and answers, comments, whatever people have. Um, and then we'll stop a little bit in a few minutes early just to make a few announcements. So I'll just sort of look around the room if anybody has any questions, thoughts. yeah.
1: I think this uh, message from this week and last week is a very powerful, correct one. But um, and are there nonetheless times when to be vulnerable is the wrong thing? I'll expand. Um, you said at one point we have to avoid being the people we think we should be. There is also a place where you think I should be vulnerable, like walk away from this talk and then go into a conversation say, I will not defend myself, I will be vulnerable, and then it becomes a should. Or, you know, there are people who are capable of accessing their painful, vulnerable spots, and so they say to themselves, I'll bring that out in all kinds of situations. I'll go there, and I'll take away the the walls. And and then they land up being damaged by that. You know, I'm wondering if, in your personal experience, or your... That. You, you did say something in the middle of the talk about holding that in a particular kind of space, and I think that's crucial. And I'd like to know
0: yeah. about that. Great. Um, so there are really two important elements to that. The first thing is what you ended with, which is we're not just talking about um, vulnerability greatness or just like some general sense of vulnerability. And I mean all sorts of different things for different people. We're talking in particular about an openness which is supported by mindful awareness, right? So we open completely, but we open as we're totally present with that opening, right? Which is why it's not the opening of the floodgates opening and me being just like blown away by it, right? But it's an opening as possible as my mindfulness can engage, can engage and be present. Having said that, that doesn't mean that in every situation, right now, we should open and be, be vulnerable. And what do I mean by when I say right now? What I mean is that ultimately, when our mindfulness is fully developed, then we would want to be completely open and vulnerable in every situation. Because that's actually the strongest protection, is our complete openness step to experience. But the mindfulness is that core of presence, so that openness is never the experience of being overwhelmed, it's never the experience of being drowned. But of course, we're not there in our mindfulness, right? <laughs> so the way we act skillfully and with mindfulness is actually to check, and that's very important. Well, if I open this much, can I bring my presence and awareness with it? Or am I going to be able to hold it? Or actually, if I do that, it's, it's actually just going to be too much, but I'm going to be overwhelmed right now. And then it's wise is to say, okay, I'm stopping opening now. Not because I think this is protecting myself ultimately. And that's the important thing, right? We never stop because we fall into the illusion that that's genuine protection. We stop because we recognize that where I am on the path right now, this is as far as I can do wisely. Right? But it's a question of degrees. And it's also a question, just something else, about different personalities. And this is also a question sort of 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 where I teach from. I remember talking about this with one of my teachers, Michelle McDonald who is the opposite personality structure for me. Which is some of us, like me, I'm actually only gonna be as vulnerable as open as I am, as I am present. Because my strong tendency is to not be vulnerable and open, it's, for me it's like not even a question. It's not like I'm going to open and be overwhelmed sometime where presence isn't there, because it's only my presence <coughs> which enables me to actually open and be vulnerable. So for me, I don't actually worry about that question because it's just not gonna happen. But that's one side. The other side, Michelle was talking about, is like she said, I'm open all the time. (laughs) The vulnerability thing is really easy. I'm totally open, and I'm actually getting flooded often because that's happening. The challenge for me is, can I bring the mindful presence into that place? (laughs) The opening is easy.